Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 14th, 2022. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here, after 11 years, we shall revisit our commentary on the revelation of Yahshua Christ with a new presentation. And, of course, it shall be based on the text as it is presented in the Christogenian New Testament. Our first version of this commentary was originally presented in 14 podcasts from December of 2010 through April of 2011. While there are several reasons for wanting to replace our old commentary, Here, I will only state that I hope to expand some portions of the original while also offering some clarifications, rewriting, or further expounding on some of our explanations. I also hope to more thoroughly cross-reference portions of parallel prophecies which are found in the books of the prophets, especially in Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Later that same year, I first published Christrike, which is the title of a book which had encapsulated the original podcast commentary. While we hope this new commentary will be more comprehensive, I do not foresee adding much to the interpretations themselves. But while I cannot yet rule that out completely, I do think that this new version will I do not think that this new version will invalidate anything I had written there, except for one note which must be corrected at Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, which I shall discuss further below. This commentary, even this introduction, shall be founded on the edited text of Christrike rather than the notes for the original podcasts. That is my starting point for this endeavor. I'm sure I will add much to it. For that reason, I was tempted to title this series Christrike 2.0 or something similar, but I decided to stay with our more traditional scheme on the revelation of Yahshua Christ. That other title might be appropriate if Yahweh God permits me to publish a second edition of the book, something which I certainly hope to achieve. As I also asserted in our preface to the original volume, in a statement which was directed at denominational Christians, there is no rapture in the Revelation. Yahshua Christ himself had taught his disciples to pray to God that the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, as it is in Matthew chapter 6, that your kingdom must come, your will must be done, as in heaven, also upon the earth. Therefore, that certainly must be the will of Yahweh our God, as Christ would not ask his disciples to pray for anything which is contrary to his will, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 10, where it is also repeated, Yahshua Christ had his disciples announce to people 
that the kingdom of Yahweh comes nigh upon you. It is also repeated there more than once. Later, in Luke chapter 11, he told his adversaries, But if by the finger of Yahweh I cast out demons, then the kingdom of Yahweh has overtaken you. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus had affirmed in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Yahshua Christ is going to judge living and dead at his manifestation and his kingdom. Then in Colossians chapter 1, he had explained to his readers that God had already gave us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, or perhaps his dear Son. Christians have a responsibility to help build the kingdom of God here on earth, and the false teaching of an imminent rapture has taught them to shirk that responsibility. Rather than hoping to be taken out of the world so that they may leave the world behind, they should be struggling to build the kingdom of God within this world as a testimony against the world. For that, Christ had said in Matthew chapter 24, this good message or gospel, this good message of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all the nations, and then shall the end come. The Revelation describes the very same end which Paul of Tarsus had described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he wrote in part, Just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ all shall be produced alive, but each in his own order. The first fruit, Christ, then those of the anointed at his arrival, then the consummation, when he should hand over the kingdom to Yahweh, who is also the Father, when he shall abolish all rule and all license and all power. Indeed, it is necessary for him to reign until he should place all of the enemies under his feet, until he should trample them that dominion, from a word which actually means to trample, which was given to Adam in Genesis chapter 1. But Adam failed to trample the enemies of God. Instead, he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather than trampling it down. Christians shall ultimately confront and destroy the enemies of God here on earth, and not escape them in some fantastic rapture by being magically carried off into heaven. However, the rapture is not our only difference with other Christian sects, and many of them do not hold to such a doctrine. At Christagenia, we present a worldview which is vastly different from all of the other Christian sects. First, we recognize that it was inevitable, especially once men began reading the Bible for themselves, for sex to arrive. Paul says at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 19, For there must also be sects among you, in order that those approved will become evident among you. But most importantly, 
most importantly to us in relation to the Revelation. We believe in the historical view of prophecy, that prophecy is history written in advance so that men may look back upon it and know that God is true. This is the view of prophecy held by both the reformers and by the earliest Christian writers. As these pages shall demonstrate, yet since not all prophecy is fulfilled, not all of its fulfillment may be discerned by men. And when men attempt to force unfulfilled prophecy into an interpretation as if it were fulfilled, the errors are most often readily apparent. While there are many clear allegories in Scripture, we believe that Greek and Hebrew words mean just what they had meant to ancient Greeks and ancient Hebrews, as they were used in the vernacular of their own time, and not necessarily what modern churchmen claim that they mean today. Words do not have special definitions simply because they appear in the Bible. So we also believe in the literal meanings of the words of the covenants of God, that they are true. Abraham was told that his seed would become many nations, his offspring, and his belief in that statement and his trust in God are what made him righteous, his trust in God that he would fulfill that promise as it was spoken had, are what had made him righteous, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. We also believe those words exactly as both Moses and Paul had taught them. Identifying those nations is one key to understanding the revelation. So we also believe, through a study of ancient and classical history and archaeology, in concert with biblical prophecy, that those nations which sprung from Abraham's seed are indeed the later nations of Europe. While the earlier white nations of Europe had developed from the various other tribes of Japhethite and other Shemitic peoples from the Near East, the European nations, being the seed or offspring of the descendants of Noah and Abraham, along with the nations of the Near East as they were several thousand years ago. That is why the world empires of the prophecies of Daniel are centered around those peoples. Like Daniel, the prophecy found in the Revelation is Eurocentric because these truly are the people of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. These European nations are the nations, or the Gentiles, of New Testament Scripture, and most Bible translators erroneously render the Greek word ethnos as Gentile. The Greek word ethnos never meant non-Jew, and neither did the Latin word gentilis. While many people today who are steeped in modern globalist multicultural propaganda will bristle at these ideas. It does not mean that they aren't true. And these things were common knowledge to men such as Martin Luther only 500 years ago. But the people of Daniel's world empires 
were also steeped in that same multicultural propaganda. And Yahweh God had destroyed all of those empires, the beasts of Daniel's visions. The Tower of Babel was the foreshadow of all of those world empires, and it is also the type for today's Mystery Babylon. The globalist world commercial order built up over these past several centuries where the one world multicultural propaganda has once again been revived. The Revelation in its later chapters prophecies the fall of Mystery Babylon and therefore of the modern globalist commercial order. One may continue to believe the futurist fantasies and escapist rapture religion of the Judeo-Christian sects, or one may examine biblical prophecy and world history as they truly harmonize. Here we aspire to do just that, as we have in all of our Bible commentaries. We must warn, however, that while we shall discuss history, we are not venturing to teach history itself. We shall only endeavor to present enough of a historic narrative that its correlation with the prophecy of the Revelation may be clearly elucidated. Like all students of the scriptures, I am also indebted for, to a long list of teachers. Most of the authors that have influenced me lived in the 19th and early 20th centuries. George Rawlinson and Sharon Turner and the great British and sometimes American scholars who had translated and annotated the early Loeb Classical Library editions of the classics, who are too numerous to list. Old Father, Jones, Fraser. They were all learned men. It is a shame that their works are not a staple in schools today, since the classics are indeed timeless. Of the more modern Christian writers, I am indebted to Howard Rand and especially to Bertrand Compare, both of whose works in the historical interpretation of prophecy made an indelible impression upon and helped to lay the foundation for this work. However, I am especially indebted to Clifton Emmerheiser, who had been my fellow worker and a great encouragement and motivator to me for 20 years until 2018. That is our preface to our presentation of the Revelation. Now we will proceed with a basic introduction to the text. Like the rest of the New Testament, there are many witnesses to the text of the Revelation which are quite old. However, when the translation found in the Christogonian New Testament was created, the concern centered exclusively with those manuscripts which are esteemed to date to the 6th century and earlier. Since, in my understanding, from the 6th century and the time of Justinian, the Roman Church had first begun to extend its reach and consolidate its emperor-granted power over Christendom. And it was indeed Justinian who had granted the power of the popes of Rome over 
the other bishops of Christendom within the empire. We will speak at length about that when we discuss Revelation chapter 13. So that the reader has an idea of sources for the text, the age of the sources for the text. Here are the relevant witnesses to the Revelation, which are from that remotest antiquity, which predate the 6th century. First, there are papyri, papyri fragments, designated Papyrus 18, Papyrus 24, 47, 85, and 98. There are five of these in particular, and a sixth which is rather new to us, and which I haven't even checked the readings of. The Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, 27th edition, informs us as to where each of these papyri are located, which is typically a university, library, or museum, and gives a catalog number for each. These details will not be included here. We shall also take for granted the ages of the manuscripts as they are dated by archaeology and linguistics that they are generally accurate. Papyrus 98 is from the 2nd century and contains Revelation chapter 1 verses 13 through 20. Papyrus 18 is from the 3rd or 4th century and contains Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 7. Papyrus 24 is from the 4th century and contains parts of chapters 5 and 6. Papyrus 47 is from the 3rd century and contains much of chapters 9 through 15. Papyrus 85 is from the 4th or 5th century and contains parts of Revelation chapters 9 and 10. It is obvious here that most of the papyri which have survived are only fragments. And discoveries of additional papyri fragments are always ongoing in archaeology. The 27th edition of the Nestle Aland text had cataloged fragments some of which are substantial, from 98 New Testament papyri fragments, while the newer 28th edition catalogs readings from 127 fragments. Only one of the additional fragments contains any portion of the Revelation, which is known as Papyrus 115. While our translation is based on the 27th edition, for this commentary, I will examine and consider any variations of the text supplied by that papyrus, in which fragments of Revelation chapters 2 through 10 have survived. Next are the Great Onkyos, which are Koine Greek vellum manuscripts that, unlike the papyri, were made from animal skins, that is how vellum is made, and for that reason, they are very durable. The Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century. This is the only complete copy of the Revelation from antiquity, which is esteemed to predate the 5th century. While with the information that we have, no manuscript can be imagined to be perfect. This is probably the most reliable single ancient copy that we currently possess. The entire Codex Sinaiticus is legible, 
and may be freely viewed on the internet at codexsynaticus.org, although the presentation is limited. The Codex Alexandrinus from the 5th century. It contains all of the revelation. Although portions of the text have been damaged, there, there is like one section with large holes in the center of the page, and there are many pages whose edges and corners are very damaged and, for that reason, barely legible or absolutely illegible. It is my opinion that generally the New Testament manuscripts derived or descended from this manuscript and others like it can be exhibited to be unreliable in many respects. Yet out of all of the ancient manuscripts, the King James Version is closest to this one. As a digression, after the 19th century scholars, I consider the Codices Alexandrinus, Ephraimi Siri, sometimes called the Ephraimi Siri Rescriptus or Ephraimi Rescriptus, and other similar manuscripts to be the Alexandrian tradition, where today they are commonly referred to as the Byzantine text type, some of the labels that scholars use to identify ancient manuscripts and groups of manuscripts have actually been changed from the 19th century to the 20th. The Codex Alexandrinus may be viewed freely on the internet at a website operated by the British Library, but there are also portions of it available freely in volumes published electronically in PDF format at archive.org and other sources. That's not true of the Codex Sinaiticus, where you have to go to the codexsynaticus.org website in order to view it. I have not yet seen a copy independent of that website, which I believe is unfortunate that I just can't download the images of the pages. The Codex Ephraimi Siri also known as the Ephraimi Rescriptus, is from the 5th century, and closely follows the Codex Alexandrinus, although they do not always agree. For that reason, those two manuscripts, those two manuscripts were grouped together, along with some others, later manuscripts, by 19th century scholars, and they were called the Alexandrian tradition, but once again today, they are called the Byzantine text type. And they're called the Byzantine text type because even though the Codex Alexandrinus had clearly originated in Alexandria in Egypt and was brought to Byzantium at a later time, all of the majority text manuscripts of the early Byzantine or Orthodox churches were believed to have been copied from one of these manuscripts, and they closely follow these manuscripts, which is why the King James Version is also very similar to the Codex Alexandrinus, but it doesn't match it completely. It's closer to the Alexandrinus than it is to the Sinaiticus or Vaticanus or any of the other truly old manuscripts.
The Ephraimi series contains text from many chapters of the Revelation, but it is not complete. This manuscript is also what is called a palimpsest, which is a manuscript that was written over another manuscript which had been scraped or which had usually, I should say, had usually been scraped or washed off so that it could be reused. And therefore, it is much more difficult to read and, in my opinion, far less reliably. Other famous codices containing fra other less famous, I'm sorry, codices containing fragments of the Revelation are known only by identifying numbers. O163 from the 5th century contains Revelation 16 verses 17 through 20. O169 from the 4th century contains parts of Revelation chapters 3 and 4. O207 from the 4th century contains parts of Revelation chapter 9. That is about it for truly old manuscripts of the Revelation, those which date from prior to the 6th century. There are many other manuscripts after these which contain all the parts of Revelation, which, like the rest of the New Testament, is attested to rather consistently down through the centuries. There are also witnesses for the text of the Revelation in manuscripts of early Christian writers, such as Tertullian, Irenaeus, Cyprian, and Victorinus of Pita, who are all from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. However, for the Revelation, and only for the Revelation, the medieval manuscripts, there's like over a thousand of them, commonly used by the churches and collectively known as the majority text, are divided into two groups. Identified by the differences which these groups contain, which these groups reflect, I should say, in the text of the Revelation, the first group are a subset of manuscripts known as the coin tradition, which are of the majority. As contrasted to a minority of manuscripts believed to originate from one Andreas of Caesarea. Andreas was a medieval monk, possibly of the 9th century or a little earlier, who wrote a commentary on the Revelation. Apparently, some of his notes or revisions were later incorporated into the text, and those manuscripts which were copied from that had created a second camp of Revelation manuscripts that contain differences and interpolations. The King James Version of the Revelation is apparently based on those divergent manuscripts. Unfortunately, due to an oversight on the part of the editors of the Nestle Aland Novem Testamentum Grece through its 27th edition, Novum Testamentum Grece is simply Greek New Testament in Latin. It was esteemed that a portion of Revelation chapter 20 verse 5 was one of those editions made by Andreas, 
where it reads, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. While we are still persuaded that these words from that verse do not belong in our Bibles, they are found in the text of the Codex Alexandrinus. The correction first appeared in the 28th edition of the Nestle Aland text, and now I have verified it for myself from existing copies of that codex, which are available in internet libraries. I shall actually include an image of the relevant section with this presentation when the text is posted at Christagenia later this evening. In spite of that, the passage in question is not found in the Codex Sinaiticus or in a text as it was cited by the 3rd century Christian writer and bishop Victorinus Apeta. Neither is it found in the manuscripts of the majority text which follow the coin tradition which are the majority. Because it is found in the majority text manuscripts from Andreas of Caesarea and had been overlooked in the Alexandrinus, it was previously ascribed to him. It is found in the Latin Vulgate, so I do not understand how the error of the attribution was not discovered earlier, Jerome having translated the Vulgate in perhaps the 5th century AD. However, this example nevertheless shows how one's entire view of the Bible or its prophecy may be changed with a single misunderstanding or an interpolation in just one verse. Yet, while textual criticism can be taken beyond reason, it is important in determining just what writing it is that we should call our Bible. That concludes my discussion of the manuscripts, and now we will have an introduction to the Revelation itself. This might be even more tedious. I'm sorry. It might be tedious. I don't know. The Revelation of Yahshua Christ opens by declaring itself to be a revelation from Yahshua Christ, which Yahweh had given him, given to him to show to his servants the things which are necessary to happen quickly. And he, having sent, explained through his messenger, through an angel, if you will, to his servant, Johannes, or John, who bore witness to the word of Yahweh and the testimony of Yahshua Christ, as many things as he had seen. It is clear from John chapter 1 that John believed Yahshua Christ to be Yahweh God come in the flesh. There the apostle writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Yahweh. And the Word was Yahweh. He was in the beginning with Yahweh. All things were through him, and without him was not even one thing. That which was done in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness comprehends it not. And then a little further on. And the word became flesh, and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his splendor, splendor as the most beloved by the Father, 
full of favor and truth. So although Yahshua Christ is the physical expression of God as a man, Yahweh God incarnate, the language which was the language which was consistently used by both Christ and his apostles professes that all knowledge, wisdom, power, and authority originate with Yahweh, the invisible God and Father. That does not make him a separate person. As Paul of Tarsus had said, Yahshua Christ is the image of the person of God. There's only one person, and it is God. Yahshua Christ is the image of his person. Whether Revelation testifies that it is written by his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, so that John may show to his servants the things which are necessary to happen quickly. That can only mean that this John who wrote the Revelation is the same John who wrote the gospel bearing that name, the word of God which is mentioned here. The word of God is what John meant to describe his gospel. That also indicates that the Gospel of John was already written. And I am of the opinion that it was the cause of his exile to Patmos. So our intent here is to demonstrate that the same John who wrote the Gospel identified by that name had also written the Revelation, as the Revelation itself clearly informs us here that he had and also that he was indeed confined to Patmos for a time during the reign of the emperor Domitian. After the death of Domitian, John was able to leave Patmos and retire to Ephesus, where he probably also wrote all three of his surviving epistles. This John, being a humble man, had never mentioned his own name in his gospel, although in other ways, in his text, he did fully indicate that he was the disciples, he was the disciple whom the others had called John, the son of Zebedee. In his epistles, which also attest to having been written by the author of that same gospel, at least the first epistle, he only referred to himself as the elder or presbyter. It is also my opinion that here in the Revelation, he mentioned his own name because by that time he was a well-known elder of the church, and by his mention, he sought to distinguish the document as having had an authentic apostolic origin. Since Domitian ruled from 81 to 96 AD, we see that John was indeed quite aged when he wrote the Revelation, but he is attested to having been a very young man during the minister, ministry of Christ. And if he were as young as 16 when that ministry began in 28 AD, as he seems to have been, then his age may be estimated to be around 84 years in 96 AD. He may have been even younger at the start. It is apparent 
in the Greek moral standards of the time, as they are expressed in classical and Hellenistic literature. That leaning on the breast of another man during a meal would have been inappropriate for a grown man, but not inappropriate for a youth. John's youth would also explain how he was so close to Christ as to recollect intimate conversations and debates which the other apostles had apparently not witnessed, while at the same time the adversaries of Christ seemed to have neglected to consider John himself as either an enemy or a threat. Furthermore, there is the ministry of Paul to consider in relation to John's presence in Ephesus. From about 53 or 54 AD, Paul had founded the Christian assemblies in that city, apparently with the help of Priscilla and Aquila, and perhaps even Apollos. Paul stayed there for three years, as it is recorded in Acts chapters 19 and 20. Yet just before his stay in Ephesus, Paul had visited Jerusalem and Antioch, where he wrote of having seen John at that time, in his epistle to the Galatians written just before his sojourn in Ephesus, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 18. So it is clear that John had not yet been in Ephesus. Then, since here in the Revelation, John criticizes the church at Ephesus for having left their first love. It is fully apparent that John's ministry in Ephesus must have been long after the time of Paul's passing, and therefore the biblical narrative is consistent with the late date which is ascribed to the Revelation by the early Christian writers, as we shall see. In any event, the plain facts surrounding the time when the Revelation was written clearly rebuke the doctrine of preterism, a view of prophecy adopted by medieval Jesuits for political reasons, since preterists insist that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD. Preterists, like futurists and those who believe in the rapture, should take note that their doctrine is the invention of men who sought to protect the papacy of Rome from the true historicist interpretation of prophecy. The historicists of the time, the historicists of the late medieval period, rather accurately understood that the papacy was at least one of the beasts of the 13th chapter of the Revelation, and whether they were right or wrong, many also had esteemed it to be the mystery Babylon of Revelation chapter 18. So preterism and futurism were developed to shield the papacy, the papacy, I believe in the 15th century, perhaps a little earlier. Now we shall endeavor to further establish the historical context of John's writing and later ministry. The following excerpts are all taken from the Antinicene Fathers. That means the notable 
church writers who predated the Council of Nicaea. They cannot be called Catholic in the Roman Catholic sense of the word. They were Catholic in the original sense of the word, which I will probably explain before our commentary on the Revelation comes to an end. So these were all taken from the Anti-Nicene Fathers, translations of the writings of the Fathers down to A.D. 325, as they were published electronically by Logos Research Systems. By fathers here, using the term in the Roman Catholic sense, which we ourselves may reject, they mean to refer to all of those early Christian bishops and other writers whose works have been preserved to one degree or another. Some of these writings are, of course, of greater import than others. While we may not agree with all of their doctrines, and while they often did not fully agree with one another, Christianity at this time was quite different than what the organized Roman Catholic Church later professed, and the historical, the historical accounts found in these documents cannot be lightly dismissed. So our first witness to the writing of the Revelation is found in the epistle of Ignatius to the Tarsians, which is esteemed to be one of the spurious epistles of Ignatius. Ignatius was a second century bishop of Antioch in Syria. Of the 15 surviving epistles attributed to him, there are some eight which are esteemed to be spurious by modern academics, and seven which are esteemed to be legitimate. While a full study of them cannot be made for our purposes here, as it would be very lengthy, and we do not even agree with all of the reasons for which they are rejected, for example, Tarsians is rejected primarily because it rejects the so-called Trinity, as if the Trinity was actually Christian. This is nevertheless a document of early antiquity, which expresses many things commonly known among early Christians. So from chapter 3, the true doctrine respecting Christ, Ignatius, perhaps, perhaps Ignatius, to the Tarsians. Mindful of him, do ye by all means know that Jesus the Lord was truly born of Mary, being made of a woman, and was as truly crucified, for, says he, a reference to Paul of Tarsus, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus. And he really suffered and died and rose again. For, says he, or Paul, if Christ should become passable, I'll explain that verb later, or adjective as it is here, if Christ should become passable, and should be the first to rise again from the dead. And again, in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. The first citation is from the book of Acts, the second citation from the epistle to the Romans. Otherwise, what advantage would there be in becoming subject to bonds if Christ has not died? What advantage in patience 
what advantage in enduring stripes? And why such facts as the following? Peter was crucified. Paul and James were slain with the sword. John was banished to Patmos. Stephen was stoned to death by the Jews who killed the Lord. But, in truth, none of these sufferings were in vain, for the Lord was really crucified by the ungodly. Seems to refer to those without God, period. That word passable means, and it's spelled with an I, P-A-S-S-I-B-L-E, rather than something which can be passed, which would be spelled with an A rather than an I. That word passable means to be capable of fear or suffering. Christ was called passable in that sense because he was capable of suffering. The author citing Acts chapter 26 verse 23. Now from the epistle of Ignatius to the Ephesians, which is generally esteemed to be one of the legitimate epistles of Ignatius. And this is probably the shortest citation, by far, which we will have in this group. Surely I may point out some of the proverbial wisdom of this great disciple, which has often stirred my soul, as with the trumpet heard by St. John in Patmos. In him, indeed, the lions encountered a lion, one truly begotten of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Twice here the epistles attributed to Ignatius affirm that the original Apostle John, the disciple of Christ, was banished to Patmos. So now, turning to the 2nd and early 3rd century Christian writer, Clement of Alexandria, from the Fragments of Clemens Alexandrinus, titled Part 12, Fragments Not Given in the Oxford Edition, that's really irrelevant, from a treatise titled, Who is the Rich Man that Shall Be Saved? We read, And that you may still more be still more confident that repenting thus, truly there remains for you a sure hope of salvation. Listen to a tale, which is not a tale, but a narrative, handed down and committed to the custody of memory about the Apostle John. For when on a tyrant's death, meaning Domitian, he returned to Ephesus from the Isle of Patmos. He went away, being invited, to the contiguous territories of the nations, here to appoint bishops, there to set in order whole churches, there to ordain such as were marked out by the Spirit. That is all we will quote from Clement of Alexandria in this light. Hippolytus of Rome was a contemporary of Clement who died about 235 A.D. Clement died around 215. From the appendix to the works of Hippolytus, in the section described as containing dubious and spurious pieces, from a treatise entitled Hippolytus on the Twelve Apostles, where each of them preached and where he met his end. John, again in Asia, was banished by Domitian the king to the Isle of Patmos, in which he also wrote his gospel and saw the apocalyptic vision. And in Trajan's time, he fell asleep at Ephesus, where his remains were sought for, but could not be found. I guess I was wrong about that second citation from 
the Epistle of Ignatius to the Ephesians because I do have one shorter citation. From the same, from Hippolytus, in a treatise entitled Treatise on Christ and Antichrist. For he sees when in the Isle of Patmos a revelation of awful mysteries, which he recounts freely and makes known to others. Later we shall see that Irenaeus, an even earlier writer, also attested that John had lived to the time of Trajan, which is to at least 98 AD. For now we shall cite Justin Martyr, or Justin of Caesarea, who lived from approximately 103 until 165 AD, a time very close to that of the Apostle John, although he could not have known him. This is from chapter 81 of the Dialogue of Justin, Philosopher and Martyr, with Trifo, a Jew. Perhaps Trifo was a Judean. To his credit, it's possible, since he was arguing with Justin about Christianity, however, it's more likely that he was a Jew. Justin wrote, And further, there was a certain man with us, whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him, that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem, and that thereafter the general, and in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. So without a doubt, Justin Martyr believed that the Apostle John, the Apostle of Christ, was the author of the Revelation. Of course, we do not have to accept Justin's interpretation of the Revelation. But the historical fact he expresses is that the John who wrote it is also John the Apostle. Now Irenaeus, who lived until 202 BC, was Bishop of Lugdunum in Gaul, which is now Lyons in France. From Irenaeus, from his Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 1, Paragraph 1, where we indeed see that it was the Apostle John of the Gospel of that name who had lived in Ephesus. We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public, and at a later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures, to be the ground and pillar of our faith. For it is unlawful to assert that they preached before they possessed perfect knowledge, as some do even venture to say, boasting themselves as improvers of the apostles. Forever Christians had mixed in Plato, Aristotle, Gnosticism, and completely corrupted the Roman Catholic Church. For after our Lord rose from the dead... The apostles were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, were filled from all his gifts, and had perfect knowledge. They departed to the ends of the earth, preaching the glad tidings of the good things sent from God to us, and proclaiming the peace of heaven to men, who indeed do all equally and 
individually possess the gospel of God. Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. Now, that does not mean that the gospel of Matthew, which we have now, is a translation. It certainly is not. It seems to me that Matthew wrote his gospel in each language, which, being a publican when he was chosen by Christ to be an apostle, he was certainly able to do. Continuing with Irenaeus, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome, and this may be the earliest surviving assertion that Peter was in Rome, and laying the foundations of the church, after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. So the Gospel of Mark, according to Irenaeus, is Peter's Gospel. There are other witnesses to that, and I accept that. Mark is mentioned towards the later part of Peter's life in his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 13. Continuing with Irenaeus, Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. So here, from antiquity, we have a direct statement corroborating something which is evident from the New Testament, that Paul's gospel message is indeed that gospel which Luke had recorded. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. This testimony from Irenaeus would have been written less than a hundred years after the revelation was published. While the lengthy citations may be arduous, the wider passage is necessary in order to see the full historical context of the statements. So, once again, and our citations will actually get longer as we proceed, and there are still quite a few more. Once again from Irenaeus Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 3, Paragraph 4. But Polycarp also was not only instructed by the apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also, by apostles in Asia, appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna, whom I also saw in my early youth, for he tarried on earth a very long time, and when a very old man, gloriously and most nobly suffering martyrdom, speaking of Polycarp, departed this life, having always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles, and which the church has handed down, and which alone are true. To these things all the Asiatic churches, the churches of Asia Minor, and technically Roman Asia was only the western part of Asia Minor. To these, all the Asiatic churches testify, as do also those men who have succeeded Polycarp down to the present time. A man who was of much greater weight and a more steadfast witness of truth than Valentinus and Marcion and the rest of the heretics. He it was who, coming to Rome in the time of Anicetus, caused many to turn away from the aforesaid heretics to the church of God, proclaiming that he had received this one and sole truth from the apostles, 
that namely, which is handed down by the church. There are also those who heard from him that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus, and perceiving, perceiving Corinthus within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. When Irenaeus mentions the church here, he is not speaking of the Roman Catholic Church, but he is speaking of the overall body of Christ and the struggles with the heretics which were going on within that body, where most Christian bishops followed the scriptures, and they followed the scriptures in a Catholic manner, the word Catholic at the time meaning something totally different than the Roman Catholic application of the word from the 7th century. The word Catholic actually means down whole, to receive the faith through the entire scripture, Old Testament and New, whereas heretics such as Marcion had rejected the entire Old Testament and dissected and discarded portions of the New. And Polycarp himself replied to Marcion, who met him on one occasion, and said, Dost thou know me? I do know thee, the firstborn of Satan. Such was the horror which the apostles and their disciples had against holding even verbal communication with any corruptors of the truth. As Paul also says, a man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject knowing that he that is such is subverted, and sinneth, being condemned of himself. There is also a very powerful epistle of Polycarp written to the Philippians, from which those who choose to do so, and are anxious about their salvation, can learn the character of his faith and the preaching of the truth. Then again, the church in Ephesus, founded by Paul, and having John remaining among them permanently until the times of Trajan, or Trajan, is a true witness of the tradition of the apostles. So we went through all of that little historical background to arrive at that last statement, but that's fine. Many of these writers we cite here were actually contemporaries. As, for example, Irenaeus died in 202 AD, Clement in 215, Tertullian in 220, and Hippolytus in 235. So they all lived at the same time for at least a good portion of their lives. While Ignatius and Justin, Justin Martyr, had lived earlier. Trajan was Roman Emperor from 98 AD to 117 AD. So John had lived until at least the year 98, and perhaps a bit longer. Now we shall turn to Tertullian, who lived from 160 to 220 AD, and who was the Bishop of Carthage and a prolific Christian apologist and writer. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, considers him 
a heretic today. Along with most of these writers, Justin Martyr's a heretic, Origen's a heretic. Irenaeus, they did not brand a heretic, but they do not pay any attention to him in their doctrine. For instance, Irenaeus celebrated the Passover date, or I should say the Easter date, the Passover date according to the manner in which I believe the Greek Orthodox Church accounts it today, and not in the matter of the Roman Catholic Church, so they don't pay attention to him, but I don't think they branded him a heretic. I'm sure Irenaeus, however, would not have agreed with Plato or Aristotle, or all of the, or at least a large portion of the other heresies brought into the Roman Catholic Church later on. So from Tertullian, from a lengthy work titled The Five Books Against Marcion, from Book 4, Chapter 5. We have also St. John's Foster Churches. For although Marcion rejects his apocalypse, the revelation, the order of the bishops thereof, when traced up to their origin, will yet rest on John as their author. In the same manner is recognized the excellent source of the other churches. I say, therefore, that in them, and not simply such as them as were founded by the apostles, but in all those which are united with them in the fellowship of the mystery of the gospel of Christ, that gospel of Luke, which we are defending with all our might, has stood its ground from its very first publication, whereas Marcion's gospel is not known to most, to most people. And to none whatever is it known without being at the same time condemned. The truth is that Marcion had taken Luke's gospel, sliced out large parts of it which mentioned the New, the Old Testament and other things he considered Jewish. He basically did what a neo-pagan might do today. And he fabricated his own gospel from the leftover pieces. That's the way I could describe it from things that I've read from antiquity. That's the easiest way that I could describe it. So Tertullian goes on to say, It too, of course, has its churches, but especially its own, as late as they are spurious. And should you want to know their original, you will easily discover apostasy in it than apostolicity apostolicity, with Marcion forsooth as their founder, or some one of Marcion's swarm. Even wasps make combs. So also these Marcionites make churches. The same authority of the apostolic churches will afford evidence to the other gospels also, which we possess equally through their means, and according to their usage. I mean the Gospels of John and Matthew. Whilst that which Mark published may be affirmed to be Peter's, whose interpreter Mark was. So Tertullian agrees with other writers of the time that Mark was the recorder of Peter's Gospel. For even Luke's form of the Gospel men usually ascribe to Paul. And it may well seem that the works which disciples publish belong to their masters. Well then, Marcion ought to be called 
to a strict account concerning these other Gospels also. For having omitted them and insisted in preference on Luke, or at least his shredded version of Luke, as if they too had not had free course in the churches, as well as Luke's gospel, from the beginning. Nay, it is even more credible that they existed from the very beginning. For being the work of the apostles, they were prior and coeval in origin with the churches themselves. But how comes it to pass, if the apostles published nothing, that their disciples were more forward in such a work, for they could not have been disciples without any instructions from their masters. If then it be evident that these gospels also were current in the churches, why did Marcion not touch them, either to amend them if they were adulterated, or to acknowledge them if they were uncorrupt? For it is but natural that they who were perverting the gospel should be more solicitous about the perversion of those things whose authority they knew to be more generally received. Even the false apostles were so called on this very account, because they imitated the apostles by means of their falsification. And as far then, as he might have amended what there was to amend, if found corrupt, Insofar did he firmly imply that all was free from corruption, which he did not think required amendment. In short, he simply amended what he thought was corrupt, though indeed not even this, justly, because it was not really corrupt. For if the Gospels of the Apostles have come down to us in their integrity, whilst Luke's, which is received amongst us, so far accords with their rule as to be on a par with them, in permanency of reception in the churches. It clearly follows that Luke's gospel has also come down to us in like integrity until the sacrilegious treatment of Marcion. In short, when Marcion laid hands on it, it then became diverse and hostile to the gospels of the apostles. I will therefore advise his followers that they either change these gospels, however late to do so, into a conformity with their own, whereby they may seem to be in agreement with the apostolic writings, for they are daily retouching their work, as daily they are convicted by us, or else that they blush for their master, who stands self-condemned either way, when once he hands on the truth of the gospel, conscience smitten, or again subverts it by shameless tampering. Tertullian is basically in a very circumlocutious way, challenging, challenging Marquion to corrupt the other Gospels or to produce corrupted versions of the other Gospels as he already had with the Gospel of Luke. For whatever reason, Marquion, in creating his short-lived heresy, had only sought to corrupt or had only corrupted and used as a basis for his heresy, the Gospel of Luke. Such are the summary arguments which we use when we take up arms against heretics for the faith of the Gospel, maintaining both that order of periods which rules that a late date is the mark of forgers, and that authority of churches which lends support to the tradition of the apostles, because truth must needs precede the forgery, and proceed straight from those by whom 
it has been handed on. We would agree with the view of Tertullian that in regard to these scriptures and the revelation, it is quite correct, and he was writing in opposition to the perverts of his own time. As for some reason, the Marcionites had accepted only the Gospel of Luke, but they also made a perversion of that, cutting out many of its passages. Now once again from Tertullian, from his treatise entitled The Prescription Against Heretics, from chapter 26. Come now, you who would indulge a better curiosity, if you would apply it to the business of your salvation. Run over the apostolic churches, in which the very thrones of the apostles are still preeminent in their places, in which their own authentic writings are read, uttering the voice and representing the face of each of them severally. Achaia is near you, in which you find Corinth. Since you are not far from Macedonia, you have Philippi, and there too you have the Thessalonians. Since you are able to cross through Asia, you get Ephesus. Since, moreover, you are close upon Italy, you have Rome, from which there comes even into our own hands the very authority of apostles themselves. How happy is its church, on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's, where Paul wins his crown in a death like John's, where the Apostle John was first plunged, unhurt, into boiling oil, and thence remitted to his island, to, remitted to his island exile. And that account, I believe, is alluded to in sources other than Tertullian, but I don't think they are as old. See what she has learned, what taught, what fellowship has had with even our churches in Africa, Tertullian being the Bishop of Carthage, Roman Carthage. He was a Roman. One Lord God does she acknowledge, the creator of the universe, and Christ Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, the Son of God the Creator, and the resurrection of the flesh. The law and the prophets she unites in one volume with the writings of evangelists and apostles, from which she drinks her faith. This she seals with the water of baptism, arrays with the Holy Ghost, feeds with the Eucharist, cheers with martyrdom, and against such a discipline, thus maintained, she admits no gainsayer. Tertullian speaking of what he thought was the integrity of the church or the collection of Christians in his world as a whole. This is the discipline which I no longer say foretold that heresy should come, but from which they proceeded. However, they were not of her because they were opposed to her. Even the rough wild olive arises from the germ of the fruitful, wit, rich, and genuine olive. Also from the seed of the mellowest and sweetest fig, there springs the empty and useless wild fig. In the same way, heresies too come from our plant, although not of our kind. They come from the grain of truth, but owing to their falsehood, they have only wild leaves to show. So the point there was to 
portray Tertullian's account of the suffering of the Apostle John and the story, no matter what you want to think of it, I don't know if it's older than the 3rd century, where John was plunged, unhurt, into boiling oil and then remitted to his island exile. Once more from Tertullian, from a treatise entitled Flight in Persecution, section 9, and we get more relevant here as we proceed. Accordingly, John also teaches that we must lay down our lives for the brethren. Much more than we must do it for the Lord. This cannot be fulfilled by those who flee the rapture crowd. Finally, mindful of his own revelation, in which he had heard the doom of the fearful, and so, speaking from personal knowledge, he warns us that fear must be put away. There is no fear, says he, in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment the first epistle of John. The fire of the lake, no doubt, the words of Tertullian. He that feareth is not perfect in love, to wit the love of God. And yet who will flee from persecution but he who fears? Who will fear but he who is not loved? With this passage where we see that Tertullian quotes from the gospel epistles and revelation of John, and attributes them to the same John. He clearly exhibits a firm belief that the same John wrote all of them. Yes, and if you ask counsel of the Spirit, what does he approve more than that utterance of the Spirit? For indeed, it incites all almost to go and offer themselves in martyrdom, not to flee from it, so that we also make mention of it. If you are exposed to public infamy, he says, it is for your good. For he who is not exposed to dishonor among men is sure to be so before the Lord. Do not be ashamed. Righteousness brings you forth into the public gaze. Why should you be ashamed of gaining glory? The opportunity is given you when you are before the eyes of men. So also everywhere, seek not to die on bridal beds, nor in miscarriages, nor in soft fevers, but to die the martyr's death, that he may be glorified who has suffered for you. And I must say, laying down one's life for one's brethren, which may also entail merely dedicating one's life to one's people, cannot be fulfilled by those who flee. And it cannot be fulfilled by those who merely anticipate being rescued in some sort of rapture. The men who place their hopes in a rapture are self-righteous and self-absorbed cowards, having no care for anyone but themselves. Perhaps that is why they find such a false doctrine so appealing. Now from the writings of Victorinus of Petau, a town in Pannonia, which was called Poetuio, and which is Pretoi in modern Slovenia today. And I'm not sure if I got Poetuio right. It looks like Poetavio in English, but that's not the way it was pronounced in Latin. It would be Poetuio. Petau, P-E-T-T-A-U. 
I believe that might be what the German nation calls the town, what how the town is called in the German nation. That would be my guess. But the modern Slavs pronounce it Petoy, P-T-U-J, actually. Victorinus died around 303 A.D. from his commentary on the Apocalypse of the Blessed John, in which he maintains without doubt that the author of the Gospel is the author of the Revelation, from the 10th chapter. And he says unto me, Thou must again prophesy to the peoples, and to the tongues, and to the nations, and to many kings. He says this because when John said these things, he was in the island of Patmos, condemned to the labor of the mines by Caesar Domitian. There, therefore, he saw the apocalypse, the revelation. And when grown old, he thought that he should at length receive his quittance by suffering. Domitian being killed, all his judgments were discharged. And John, being dismissed from the mines, thus subsequently delivered the same apocalypse which he had received from God. This, therefore, is what he says. Thou must again prophesy to all nations, because thou seest the crowds of Antichrist rise up, and against them other crowds shall stand, and they shall fall by the sword on the one side and on the other. That word apocalypse is not an English or a Latin word. It's from the Greek apocalypsis. Apocalypsis means covered, or I'm sorry, it means uncovered. It actually means from a covering, sort of. So it's something that's being uncovered, and I would rather translate it and that is Revelation. That would be the best translation for Apocalypsis is Revelation. In this context, uncovering, perhaps. The uncovering of future history in prophecy. And that's fine, but it's the Revelation. That's how it should be. I don't really like to write Apocalypse because it's not a translation. The interpretation here seems to be a summary referring to events prophesied in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Although earlier I had thought that perhaps it was citing a now-lost work of the Apostle John because of the way it's summarized. It's just taking a very broad landscape or, or a broad portrait of many things in, that would happen in history and summarizing them in one sentence, that's probably a little too concise. Now from the Apocrypha of the New Testament, Acts of the Holy Apostle and Evangelist John, the theologian, from the part entitled About His Exile and Departure. This work is esteemed to have been circulated widely as early as the second century. If that is the case, it would predate Tertullian because it repeats some of the same tales concerning the Apostle John that we saw in Tertullian. However, it is not our intent to comment on its authenticity at this time. Here at length, after some background history 
a meeting and discourse between John, a prisoner, and the Emperor Domitian himself is described, whereafter Domitian decides to exile John rather than execute him. Here is one short paragraph which represents a summary of the aftermath. And straightaway John sailed to Patmos, where also he was deemed worthy to see the revelation of the end. And when Domitian was dead, Nerva succeeded to the kingdom, and recalled all who had been banished, and having kept the kingdom for a year, he made Trajan his successor in the kingdom. And when he was king over the Romans, John went to Ephesus and regulated all the teaching of the church, holding many conferences, and reminding them of what the Lord had said to them, and what duty he had assigned to each. And when he was old and changed, he ordered Polycarp to be bishop over the church. While it is clear from the arguments of Tertullian that the second century heretic Marcion disputed the authorship of the Revelation, another early writer who doubted that the Apostle John wrote the Revelation was Dionysius of Alexandria. We are going to present his disputations at length because it exemplifies the errors of those who are otherwise faithful, unlike Marcion, but who doubt the authorship of the Revelation simply because they themselves could not understand its prophecies. Dionysius was originally a pupil of Origen in Alexandria, and eventually he was the bishop of the assembly at Alexandria. He lived until around 265 AD. He wrote a lengthy treatise attempting to prove mostly from the appearance of the name John in the Revelation that the writer was a different John than the Apostle. This is obvious sophistry, since the Revelation itself tells us that it was written by the same John who had also written and bore witness to the Gospel. However, Dionysius himself noticed that, and therefore he asserted that John Mark, another John, was the writer. However, the style is so much like that of John the Apostle, in spite of what Dionysius claims below, as we shall present it below, and the opening statements so much like those of the first epistle of John, that Dionysius' position is found to be incredible, let alone contrary to so many earlier witnesses which we have already cited here. So, from the works of Dionysius, extant fragments, from the two books on the promises, the translator introduces each paragraph of the text, and here he says, then a little further on, he speaks of the revelation of John as follows. Now some, now some before our time have set aside this book and repudiated it entirely, criticizing it chapter by chapter and endeavoring to show it to be without either sense or reason. They have alleged also that its title is false, for they deny that John is the author. Nay, further, they hold that it can be no sort of revelation, because it is covered with so gross and dense a veil of ignorance. 
They affirm, therefore, that none of the apostles, nor indeed any of the saints, nor any person belonging to the church, could be its author, but that Corinthus and the heretical sect founded by him and named after the Corinthian, after him, the Corinthian sect, began be, I'm sorry, being desirous of attaching the authority of a great name to the fiction propounded by him, prefixed that title to the book. For the doctrine inculcated by Corinthus is this, that there would be an earthly reign of Christ, and as he was himself a man devoted to the pleasures of the body, and altogether carnal in his dispositions, he fancied that that kingdom would consist in those kinds of gratifications on which he, his own heart was set, to wit, in the delights of the belly, and what comes beneath the belly, that is to say, in eating and drinking, and marrying, and in other things under the guise of which he thought he could indulge his appetites with a better grace, such as festivals and sacrifices and the slaying of victims. But I, for my part, could not venture to set this book aside, for there are many brethren who value it highly. Yet having formed an idea of it as a composition exceeding my capacity of understanding, Victorinus being quite humble in that respect, I regard it as containing a kind of hidden and wonderful intelligence on the several subjects which come under it. For though I cannot comprehend it, I still suspect that there is some deeper sense underlying the words, and I do not measure and judge its expressions by the standard of my own reason, but making more allowance for faith I have simply regarded them as too lofty for my comprehension, and I do not forthwith reject what I do not understand but I am only the more filled with wonder at it, in that I have not been able to discern its import. We shall continue this, but interrupt only to say, for now, that the fact that the revelation could not be understood in its own time, and yet, if we interpret it historically, it is absolutely clear to us today, is further proof that it is indeed from Yahweh God, and it is indeed everything which it claims to be. Now, to continue with Dionysus of Alexandria. Our translator says, after this, he examines the whole book of the Revelation, and having proved that it cannot possibly be understood according to the bald literal sense, he proceeds thus. When the prophet, has, when the prophet now has completed, so to speak, the whole prophecy. He pronounces those blessed who should observe it, and names himself, too, in the number of the same. For blessed, says he, is he that keepeth the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, who saw and heard these things, that this person was called John, therefore, and that this was the writing of a John, I do not deny. And I admit further that it was also the work of some holy and inspired man. But I could not so easily admit that this was the apostle, the son of 
Zebedee, the brother of James, and the same person with him, who wrote the gospel, which bears the title according to John, and the Catholic epistle. Note that only one of John's epistles is truly a Catholic epistle, which they use to describe a general epistle, for right or wrong. The other two epistles which John had written were personal epistles. But from the character of both, and the forms of expression, and the whole disposition and execution of the book, I draw the conclusion that the authorship is not his. For the evangelist nowhere else subjoins his name, and he never proclaims himself either in the gospel or in the epistle. And I would think the opposite, that those who read the gospel and epistles knew it was John who had written them. While John wanted to make certain that the readers of the Revelation, which may not have been widely distributed until John was dead, would also know that it was John who had written it. So, to continue, our translator says, and a little further on he adds, John, moreover, gives us the name, whether as of himself directly in the first person, or as of another in the third person. But the writer of the Revelation puts himself forward at once in the very beginning, for he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave to him to show to his servants quickly. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of his testimony and of all things that he saw. And then he writes also an epistle in which he says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace. The evangelist, on the other hand, has not prefixed his name even to the Catholic epistle, but without any circumlocution, he has commenced at once with the mystery of the divine revelation itself in these terms, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. And on the ground of such a revelation as that the Lord pronounced Peter blessed when he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And again in the second epistle, which is ascribed to John the apostle, and in the third, though they are indeed brief, John is not set before us by name, but we find simply the anonymous writing, the elder. This other author, on the contrary, did not even deem it sufficient to name himself once, meaning the John of the Gospel and the Revelation, I'm sorry, of the Gospel and the Epistles, and then to proceed with his narrative. But he takes up his name again and says, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation." And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John was in Patmos for his gospel. That is my opinion. And likewise toward the end he speaks thus. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, who saw these things and heard them. That it is a John, then, that writes these things, we must believe, for he himself tells us. What Dionysius is doing is he's admitting that a John wrote the Revelation, but it's not the John of the Gospel and the Epistles. 
In his gospel, John informs us as to the identity of the author of the gospel by that name, where in chapters 13 and 21, he describes himself only as the disciple whom Yahshua had loved, who leaned on his breast at dinner. In John chapter 13, verse 23, we read, There was reclining in the bosom of Yahshua, one from among his students whom Yahshua loved. In our commentary for that passage, I said the following in part. I find it quite incredible that so many supposed scholars would doubt the identification of the disciple whom Yahshua loved with John, as it certainly is John. As we have seen in our citation from Irenaeus, supplied with our commentary for verses 21 and 22 of the same chapter, but which I will not repeat here. He was also confident that it was John. But John neglected to mention his own name in any of his writings until the Revelation, where he mentioned his own name five times. This certainly is John the Apostle, who was too humble to mention his own name here, meaning in the Gospel. John is also the unnamed Apostle, in chapter 1 of this Gospel, who at the beginning had heard John the Baptist testify of Christ along with Andrew, John chapter 1 verse 40, and to that we can compare Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 to 22 and Mark chapter 1 verse 29. There are only four apostles together in Galilee, and they are Peter, Andrew, John, and his brother James. John is also the unnamed disciple in chapter 18 of his gospel, who is somehow known to the high priest. That is not unreasonable, as John must have been with Christ during the many confrontations which Christ had with the rulers in the temple, many of which only John had recorded. Ostensibly, at that time his young age had allowed him to escape accusation. Elsewhere in his gospel, in chapters 19, 20, and 21, he refers to himself in the same manner that he does here, meaning as the disciple whom Yahshua had loved. So if we compare John's account of the meeting of John the Baptist, and he doesn't mention his own name, and Peter, Andrew, and an unnamed disciple meet Christ and follow Christ after Christ himself was baptized by John the Baptist. So then later in Galilee, where we see that same event referenced in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1, and Christ encounters Peter, Andrew, John, and James in Galilee, then evidently Peter, Andrew, and John, because John would not name himself, were the disciples of John chapter 1 who saw Christ after he was baptized by John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. It's circumstantial, but I believe it's solid circumstances that allows me to make that connection. The Revelation informs us that its author was John and also informs us that its author had written the gospel, which is the one that we know as John, 
comparing the first epistle of John, we can also be confident that it was also written by John. But we shall wait to compare the introductory language of the epistle and the revelation as we comment on the text itself. I would rather wait until that time and I will compare all three passages and explain how it's quite obvious that the, to me that the John who wrote the gospel and the first epistle is also the John that wrote the Revelation. But now to continue with Dionysius of Alexandria. He once again expresses his doubts. And for this paragraph, there is no translator's introduction. What John this is, however, is uncertain. So where we left him off, he admitted that a John wrote the Revelation, but it's not the John. So he continues. For he has not said, and we're going to pull this apart when, when we're done with this paragraph, because it's not correct. For he has not said, as he often does in the gospel, that he is the disciple beloved by the Lord, or the one that leaned on his bosom, or the brother of James, or one that was privileged to see and hear the Lord. And this is wrong, as we shall comment below. That last statement is definitely wrong. And surely he would have given us some of these indications if it had been his purpose to make himself clearly known. But of all this he offers us nothing, and he only calls himself our brother and companion, and the witness of Jesus, and one blessed with the seeing and hearing of these revelations. I am also of opinion that there were many persons of the same name with John the Apostle, who, by their love for him, and their admiration and emulation of him, and their desire to be loved by the Lord as he was loved, were induced to embrace also the same designation, or name, John, just as we find many of the children of the faithful called by the names of Peter and Paul, Christians naming their children after the apostles. Imagine that. There is, besides, another John mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles with the surname Mark, whom Barnabas and Paul attached to themselves as companion, and of whom, again it is said, and they had also John to their minister. But whether this is the one who wrote the Revelation, I could not say. For it is not written that he came with them into Asia. But the writer says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. I think, therefore, that it was some other one of those who were in Asia. For it is said that there were two monuments in Ephesus, and that each of these bears the name of John. Now where Dionysius disputed that the author of the Revelation was privileged to see and hear the Lord. In its second verse, we learn that its author was he who bore witness to the word of Yahweh and the testimony of Yahshua Christ as many things as he had seen. So the denial is nonsense as only a disciple of Christ could have said such things. So the author of the Revelation, based on Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, must have been one of the eyewitness disciples of Christ. Once again, continuing with Dionysius of Alexandria, he makes the same case 
that we would have concerning the identity of the Gospel of John and the general epistle we know as 1 John. So he did good with those. So he says, and from the ideas and the expressions and the collocation of the same, it may be very reasonably conjectured that this one is distinct from that, that I don't agree with. For the gospel and the epistle agree with each other, and both commence in the same way. For the one opens thus, in the beginning was the word, while the other opens thus, that which was from the beginning. The one says, and the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. I would translate that same phrase, only beloved, or most beloved of the Father. That's the word monogenes, evidently in the Greek. I don't have the Greek to this text. I only have the English translations. The other says the same things with a slight alteration. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, and the life was manifested. For these things are introduced by way of prelude, and in opposition, as he is shown in the subsequent parts, to those who deny that the Lord is come in the flesh. For which reason he has also been careful to add these words, and that which we have seen we testify, and to show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. Thus he keeps to himself and does not diverge inconsistently from his subjects, but goes through them all under the same heads and in the same phraseologies, some of which we shall mention briefly. Thus the attentive reader will find the phrases, the life, the light, occurring in occurring often in both, meaning the, the Gospel of John and the First Epistle of John, and also such expressions as fleeing from darkness, holding the truth, grace, joy, the flesh and the blood of the Lord, the judgment, the remission of sins, the love of God toward us, the commandment of love and our side toward each other, or perhaps that should be on our side on our side towards each other. There's actually a typo in the text of the original. As also, that we ought to keep all the commandments, the conviction of the world, of the devil, of Antichrist, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the adoption of God, the faith required of us in all things, the Father and the Son, named as such everywhere. And altogether, through their whole course, it will be evident that the gospel and the epistle are distinguished by one and the same character of writing. But the revelation is totally different and altogether distinct from this. And I might almost say that it does not even come near it or border upon it. Neither does it contain a syllable in common with these other books. Nay more, the epistle, for I say nothing of the gospel, does not make any mention or evince any notion of the revelation, and the revelation in like manner gives no note of the epistle. Whereas Paul gives some indication of his revelations in his epistles, which revelations, however, he is not recorded in writing by themselves. And even though I kind of like Dionysius, all of these arguments are disingenuous, every single one of them, against John's authorship of the revelation. There are many analogies which are found in Paul's epistles, but which are not found in others. 
and very few of his epistles are ever mentioned in the others. So the entire argument concerning the Revelation not being mentioned in the epistles of John is unfair, or the Gospel. It is not even certain that the epistles were written either before or after John was confined to Patmos. The Gospel, I believe, was written before he was confined to Patmos. If he doesn't know about the Revelation when he wrote the Gospel or the epistles, how could he mention the Revelation? Furthermore, the Revelation is not the words of John, as the Gospel is his own description of Christ and of the things which Christ had said and done. Rather, the Revelation represents the words of Christ and a record of the visions which John was shown and told to record. So it was made for an entirely different purpose than to teach the Gospel, and from an entirely different perspective. However, it does state in the Revelation that Christ is the Word of God, the Word made flesh. Christ is the Word of God, chapter 19, verse 13. And it says that he is the beginning, even the beginning of the creation of God. He being the beginning is found in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 21, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 13. Concerning love, the church at Thuatira is commended. I know thy works and charity, which is love, agape, and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Concerning the flesh and the blood, Christ is described as the Lamb, and those who are saved are described as having washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Concerning the commandments, three times those who keep the commandments of God are mentioned, and their salvation is promised. Chapter 12, verse 17, chapter 14, verse 12, chapter 22, verse 14. Elsewhere in the Revelation, John also described Christ as the light of the world in chapters 21 and 22. For example, where the city of God is described in chapter 21, we read, And the city has not need of the sun, nor of the moon, that they would illuminate her, for the effulgence of Yahweh illuminates her, and her lamp is the Lamb. Yahweh is invisible. The lamp is the Lamb. The light comes out of the lamp. Christ is the light of the world. The light come into the world. The physical manifestation of the invisible God. Earlier in that same chapter, we see a reference to the living water of John chapter 4. Only the Apostle John recorded the discussion with the woman at the well of Samaria and spoke of the water of eternal life, the living water. And he said unto me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Finally, the nature of the Jews as devils, or as a synagogue of Satan, is clarified in the Revelation and explained just as it is in the Gospels and Epistles of John, but to a far lesser extent in the other Gospel accounts. So all of the arguments against John as its author are entirely unfair and without merit. They are all discredited, and it is revealed that the Revelation has much more in common with the other writings of John than with those of any of the other apostles. Nevertheless, we shall continue with 
Dionysus of Alexandria for one more paragraph. And furthermore, on the ground of difference in diction, it is possible to prove a distinction between the Gospel and the Epistle on the one hand, and the Revelation on the other. For the former are written not only without actual error as regards the Greek language, but also with the greatest elegance both in their expressions and in their reasonings, and in the whole structure of their style. They are very far indeed from betraying any barbarism or solecism or any sort of vulgarism in their diction. For, as might be presumed, the writer possessed the gift of both kinds of discourse, the Lord having bestowed both of these capacities upon him, these that of knowledge and that of expression, that the author of the later, however, saw a revelation and received knowledge and prophecy I do not deny. Only I perceive that his dialect and language are not of the exact Greek type, and that he employs barbarous idioms, and in some places also solecisms. These, however, we are under no necessity of seeking out at present, and I would not have anyone suppose that I have said these things in the spirit of ridicule, for I have done so only with the purpose of setting right this matter of the dissimilarity subsisting between these writings. To this I must respond that the perfection of language is also relative. For example, the Gospel of John is replete with present tense verbs, where, by today's standards, we may expect a past tense. The Greek word, soloikismos, the word which was apparently translated as solecism here, is an incorrectness in the use of language, but was also used of incorrect reasoning, citing the 3rd century B.C. Stoic philosopher Chrysippus. According to Liddell and Scott, the word was used in the same manner which it appears here, which is in company with barbarismos or barbarisms by the 1st century B.C. philosopher Philodemus and the 2nd century A.D. Greek satirist Lucian of Samosata. Liddell and Scott further explain that soloikismus was generally distinguished from barbarismus in that the first is incorrectness in the use of language, while the latter is more specifically incorrectness in the construction of sentences. However, I would contend that Dionysius, complaining that he could not understand the revelation, thought poorly of its language for that reason. Once the meaning of its prophecies are revealed, which we would assert cannot be accomplished until the prophecies themselves have come to pass, then the complaints about its language are no longer relevant. I actually do not see anything which is actually, which would actually substantiate those complaints in the first place. Dionysius had accepted the book of Revelation as an inspired work, but he rejected the Apostle John as its author on subjective and mainly hypothetical grounds. The points that he made concerning barbarisms and solecisms being left without witness 
Even if he had made examples, those by themselves would be little actual proof of his thesis. As the statement was made at the beginning of this introduction, the Revelation claims that same John who wrote the Gospel of John as its author, where it begins thus, and he having sent, explained, through his messenger, to his holy servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Yahshua Christ, as many things as he had seen. Yet Dionysius seems to have not even considered this testimony, which refutes a large portion of his argument. You can't bear witness to the word of God and the testimony of Yahshua Christ unless you were there to see it. Many of the ancients thought that the revelation consisted of things that could not be understood. And in their day, they were certainly correct. For prophecy is, indeed, history written in advance. Yet prophecy is not written so that men can read it and tell the future from the things which it describes. Rather, it is written so that men can read it and look back and know that God is true and that he keeps his word. If the revelation is true, then John the Apostle is its author as it professes. In the chapters which follow, we shall indeed see that the revelation is true and that therefore God is also true and that he does indeed keep his word. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. We will be back, hopefully in the weeks to come, with a commentary on the opening chapter of the Revelation. Praise Yahweh.